Today's scripture is from Proverbs chapter 3, verses 13 to 18. Happy are those who find wisdom and those who get understanding, for her income is better than silver and her revenue better than gold. She is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand, in her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called happy. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. be seated. So for this whole month, we have been going through the things in scripture and what modern positive psychology can help us understand what goes into an abundant life, right? Jesus said, I've come so that you would have life and have it abundantly. And I thought, what better way to kick off the new year, especially following COVID and disaffiliations and some of the things that we've had, then like, let's really dive into what makes an abundant life for ourselves and for the church. And some of the things that we've talked about the last several weeks have been no-brainers, right? Any of you could have come up and given the sermon that I've gave the last three weeks because you already know that having meaning and purpose when you wake up in the morning, right? A reason to get out of bed is something that goes into an abundant life. You already know that positive relationships and people that love you and that are going to push you to be better, right, are important to an abundant life. And then the, another thing I said was just good old plain joy, right? The emotion of feeling good goes into an abundant life. Today's topic is a little bit more complicated. It's the fourth of five things that Martin Seligman named as the, the five big buckets that he described go into a flourishing life, and he called it engagement. And basically, it just means to be present in the moment, right? To be fully immersed in whatever it is you're doing right now. And it's one of those things that when you're in that moment, you probably won't recognize it. But then looking back, you'll feel just so satisfied with how things went. And I'll give you a couple of examples. Have you ever been working, and it's one of those good work days where, like, the phone doesn't ring and no one knocks on your door, you know what I'm talking about? And you feel like, and I don't know if you're like me, but for me, it includes a big whiteboard, right? And so everything is out on the whiteboard, and you're being creative, and, you're, and then you look up and two or three hours have passed. Anyone ever been in a situation like that? If you're an artist or a musician, you might have experienced that, you know, creating art or, or playing an instrument. You look up and time has just flown by. Another example might be if you've ever been out with friends, and I don't mean acquaintance friends, I mean like good friends, the kind of friends that you can really like be yourself. And then without even noticing it, you, you let your guard down. And you, you drop the, the front that we always put up, especially at places like church, and we, we become vulnerable, and we, we for, kind of forget about 
what we look like and, and worrying about, you know, what we have to do later and things like that. We just are present in the moment. So one of Martin Seligman's contemporaries is a guy named Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. If you've never heard of him, he's got TED Talks and things like that. You should look him up. It's great stuff. Uh, here's how you spell his name. Not that that's going to help. Uh, you could probably look at that and go, I remember when I, I have tried to write his name before and I remember thinking, okay, I got to use every letter in the alphabet. I just don't remember what order to put them in. These are two of his books. Flow is the one that he wrote first and it came out in the 90s. It's super academic and heady. If you're into that kind of stuff, I encourage you to read it. The other one, Finding Flow, is much more approachable and much more applicable. But this is what he called... Uh, what um, Martin Seligman called engagement, Csikszentmihalyi calls flow. And it's the idea of being fully present, fully immersed, fully engaged in whatever you're doing right now, right? Without worrying about what's happening tomorrow or later or what happened yesterday, without worrying about what I look like or feel like, it's the ability to be present and joyful in any given moment. Now, this is a complicated sermon to preach because there's not a scripture that just says that, but there's a whole lot of scriptures, I think, that get at this idea. So I want to open with a quote that Csikszentmihalyi has in the very beginning of the book that is going to help us, and I think it's going to jog your memory on a few scriptures. Flow is what the sailor holding a tight course feels when the wind whips through her hair, when the boat lunges through waves like a colt, sails whole wind and sea humming in a harmony that vibrates in the sailor's veins. Keep going. It is what a painter feels when the colors on the canvas begin to set up a magnetic tension with each other, and a new thing, a living form, takes shape in front of the astonished creator. Or it's the feeling a father has when his child, for the first time, responds to his smile. Contrary to what we usually believe, moments like these, the best moments in our lives, are not the passive, receptive, relaxing times. The best moments usually occur when a person's body or mind is stretched to its limit in a voluntary effort to accomplish something difficult and worthwhile. Flow happens when we push ourselves to grow. When we intentionally take up a challenge that might be just a little bit more difficult than what we can do, and we rise to the challenge. When we intentionally spend our days and our time doing things that help us to grow in whatever area. Now, if you're sitting there thinking, this is starting to sound a little bit like discipleship. I'm going to agree with you on that. And so think about some of the challenges that Jesus gave to the disciples, right? The first one was drop your nets. Later, he told the rich young man, give away everything that you own and give to the poor. Toward the end of their time together, Jesus told the disciples not just take up your nets, he told them to I'm sorry, not just to drop your nets, he told them to take up your crosses. Interestingly, after all three of those statements, whether to the disciples or to the rich young man, do you know the phrase that follows? And follow me. Drop your nets and follow me. Sell everything you own, give to the poor and follow me. Pick up your cross 
and follow me. All of these are challenges that were just a little bit outside the disciples' skill set. And so one way that's helpful to think about this is to make a graph. And I'm an engineer, so I love a graph. And so when Csikszentmihalyi included a graph in the book, I was all about it. So here it is. Imagine there's a graph, and on the x-axis is your skill level, how good you are at something, right? So the better you are, the further right you would go. And on the y-axis is the challenge level. So how hard is the challenge, and how easy is the challenge? Now, if you try to do something that is way above your skill level, like your skill level is low and the challenge is high, it's going to create anxiety in you, right? You're going to be stressed about it. You're going you're gonna to worry. And, and I could name some examples. One of like the, the greatest fears that people face, you would expect it would be death, and it's not. It's public speaking. And I know it doesn't bother me that much, but I know that s- some of you, if we ask you to get up here and preach you would have some anxiety about that because you would feel like your experience level or your skill level is too far this way and the challenge would be too high. Now, of course, the opposite can also be true. If your skill level is too high and the challenge is too low, then what's going to happen? You're going to get bored. You're just going to... And here's, here's a great example to think about this. Um, if you're playing tennis and you're learning to play tennis... First thing they're going to do is you're just going to practice hitting the ball over the net, right? You're going to get a bucket of balls. You're just going to hit the ball over the net all day long. And then you're going to go shag balls, and you're going to hit them all back, right? And you're going to enjoy that because your skill level matches the challenge. Now, it's low on the graph. It's, it's in the bottom corner, kind of, but it's there. Now, that flow range, go to the next uh, slide for me there, Stephen happens right in in that angle, okay? As you keep hitting that tennis ball over the net, you're going to get better, and you're going to move out of that zone to the right, but the challenge hasn't increased, and so you're going to get bored, and at some point, you're going to say, well, that was a lot of fun, but it's not really fun anymore, so what should I do? I should increase my challenge, which probably means playing against somebody who's actually going to hit the ball back, right? Now, the danger in that is that you play against someone who's too good, and you find yourself up high again, right, up, up in a level where they're too good, they're beating me every time, I can't even return a volley, this is not fun, it just makes me stressed and anxious, and what do you do when you find yourself there? You practice more. You increase your skill. Interestingly, what happens is you started enjoying it in a flow state, but in the bottom corner what would end up happening is you would get back into flow, but not by reducing your skill or the challenge, by increasing both of them. And now this is what it looks like to grow. So here's a little a way that you can imagine this is how we grow throughout our lives. When we find ourselves in a situation where we're bored, the challenge is not high enough, we challenge ourselves. When we find ourselves in a situation where the challenge is too high and our skill is too low, we practice, we grow, we study, we whatever it is in order to meet the challenge that's been given to us. So I'm imagining Jesus walking alongside the Sea of Galilee. Y'all realize that he didn't tell them first to pick up your cross. He told them first to drop your nets. It strikes me that it would be easier to drop your nets 
than to pick up your cross. And I might even say that for the rest of us today, even it's easier to drop our nets than to pick up our crosses. But you see how the challenge increases as we grow and as we go. Now, let me give two examples of this as this happens. One is um, in 1995, I went to Camp Sumatonga to be a counselor for the first time ever. And I, it, I was recruited by my youth pastor. I was already 19, but I was one of those college kids that hung around the youth group and helped a lot. Um, and so he recruited me to be a counselor at Camp Sumatonga. And back in those days, all the counselors were volunteers. And um, so we would go and give a week, right? And, and I remember asking him the same thing probably every 19-year-old guy would ask, and that is, uh, are there going to be any... Uh, girl counselors there, you know? And I remember what he told me, he said, he said, if that's, if that's your motivation for going, you'd be better off not to go. Instead, go and give, give yourself to the kids. And, and I did, and it was in, incredible. In, incidentally, as a complete side note, it's the week I met Leanne, and we'll tell that story another time. <laughs> I remember, though, I ended up serving camp for probably close to a decade, and we would go for just a week, and every week, at the end of the week, we would get home on Saturday afternoon and just crash. We would just go to bed and sleep for 24 hours or something like that because we had given everything that we had. We, our voices were gone because we had been singing so loud and shouting and dancing. Our bodies were exhausted. Our minds were spent. All the emotion that we had had been given. And I feel like if it weren't for those days, I probably wouldn't be here. It was in those days early being challenged in my faith in ways that I probably wouldn't have been otherwise that I felt led to enough growth to get me here. Let me tell one more story. Um, can you pull up just the image of this trail? Stephen, I, I might be ahead in the slides. I apologize if I am. So uh, if, if we shift this image just a little bit over, you'll see um, the sign that is right here in front of us. Uh, there it is. I don't know if you can read that sign, but it says, End of Trail. Uh, this is in the Valley of Fire just outside Las Vegas. It was July. It was 1,000 degrees. And Leanne and I had been out hiking. And we both love hiking. Um, it was one of those great days, and we, we went down to this, this point right here, and, and we came to this sign. And y'all know what I did, right? It just kept right on going. I mean, it says that's the end of the trail, but there was a hardly a trail anyway. Leanne went back to the car, and she, she got in the air conditioning, and, and that was a good thing. And I was like, well, I'm just going to keep going for a little bit. I felt like maybe my challenge level had not yet been met, right? My skill level was higher than my challenge, and I, I wanted to keep going just a little bit. And uh, as I kept going, I ran into uh, some mountain goats. Now... I grew up in Dadeville, Alabama. I have been around goats a lot in my life. My granddaddy had goats at his farm. They like to chew on your shoelaces. If you put them through the fence, you know what I'm talking about, right? Mountain goats are not like Dadeville goats. They're not. Dadeville goats are like this tall, and they run to you and will eat anything you can give them through the fence. Uh, mountain goats are like the German shepherds of goats. They're like this tall, and they have these built-in war hammers on top of their heads. 
and they look menacing. And y'all, suddenly, the challenge level on that hike went way up for me. And my heart was racing and my adrenaline was going. And, and literally, I'm standing, I'm walking through this gorge, and I see them, they were on my left at first, so if I'm this way, they were on the left rim, and they were coming down to cross the trail and then back up on the right rim, and that's where I took this picture. But Big Daddy Goat, he kind of came down first and then stood on a rock, just, you know, just so that he had a tactical advantage over me. And uh, while all the rest of the goats crossed the trail and then up on my right, and all along, he kept an eye on me. And when I, I have been around some animals before out in the wild, and, and I get a little nervous, and when I do, I talk to them. And so I'm like, okay, guys, we're all cool, right? Everybody's going to be cool. You just keep on doing your goat thing, and I'm just going to stand right here and not do anything except maybe snap a few pictures um, so that if I die, someone has a record in my phone when they find it. The point is that suddenly what had been a low challenge, high skill experience for me became a very high challenge where I was up in that anxious space. And so once they passed on, I went on back through the trail and headed back. Here's where this could apply to us. Can you go back to the slide with the little church house on them with the graph? The question is, where are you maybe in your faith? Or maybe where are we as a church? And sometimes someone might ask you to do something, right? They might ask you to volunteer, like to teach Sunday school or, or Bible study. And, and you might feel like that challenge is too great for your skill level. And you might say, well, you know, I'm, I'm just not, I'm, I don't know the Bible well enough. Uh, if they've asked you to serve with kids, you might say, I'm not great with kids. <clears throat> and what's the solution? It's not, it's not to say no and reduce the challenge. It's to increase your skill. If you don't know the Bible well enough to be teaching Bible study, then guess what? Go read it, right? Go study it. Go watch something on YouTube about it or something like that. Get on the Internet. No, don't get your theology from the Internet. I almost said go to the Internet, but don't do that. A lot of times we find ourselves here, right? And a lot of times churches find ourselves here. The challenges around us is great. There's a lot that we need to be doing in our community and in our world and in our denomination to serve. And sometimes we don't have the resources, the money, the staff. And so we just don't do it a lot of times. I think probably more often than that, churches find themselves on the other side of this graph, and that is... Um, not looking at the challenges outside because we get too inward focused. And, and I think probably a lot of churches, probably almost every Methodist church I've ever been in has been in that position at some point where we had what we needed, we just weren't looking outside the stained glass windows enough to see the need, to see the challenge. I, I would argue uh, church folks get comfortable pretty easily, me included. And in order to get out of that, it's, it's not about just making sure you mark your pew. It's about challenging yourself. And as a church, us finding challenges that we could continue to grow. Let me pull out a few more things. Uh, as we look at that scripture that we just read, 
There are two words that jump out to me, and it's the reason I chose them. It's chokmah and shalom. And I told the early service this, and I know I do this a lot, and so I'm criticizing myself. I hate when pastors pull out the original Hebrew or Greek or something like that, and then they tell you, well, this is what it means, but this is what it really means. I realize how annoying that is, but I'm about to do that. And, and the reason is because Hebrew has about a third as many words as English. And so Hebrew words have to carry a little bit more weight. They get used in broader contexts. So you all know what shalom means. Shalom means peace, right? But it's not just an absence of conflict. It's when your skills rise to meet the challenge. Like it's, it's flow. It's a pretty good biblical description of flow. When you, it's not that you're sitting back and relaxed. It's that you have the resources and the tools at your disposal to meet the challenges that come into your life. Chokmah is the Hebrew word for wisdom. Now, after the early service, someone told me, I thought that was Sophia. And see, Sophia is the Greek word for wisdom. The Proverbs was written in Hebrew, so I figured I would pull that one. And, and it do, it's exactly what Liz said. I told Liz at the early service, that's the best sermon on wisdom I think I've ever heard. It's not just knowing what to do, it's doing it, right? The bicycle helmet does just no good sitting on the table. You have to put it on. But chokmah means more than just mental knowing and doing. It also describes skilled craftsmen and artists. So in the Old Testament, when they're describing when they built the temple, right, the artisans and the craftsmen that they used for the metalwork and the stonemasonry and the woodwork and all the carvings and things like that, they're all described as having chokmah. And that doesn't just mean being able to make good decisions. It means their skill level was really, really high. So it, yes, it means skill at making good decisions, but also skill at a whole lot of things in life. So if you want to put that on our graph, it's kind of an easy way to look at chokmah and shalom in this kind of way. That as the challenges of life come our way, of course we need to gain chokmah. We need to gain wisdom in order to meet those challenges so that we can live in a state of peace, of shalom. So that we're not either too anxious or too bored, but we're right where God would have us to be so that we can continue to grow. Now... A lot of times we think that applying this to our lives means we need to f take more time off, right? We need to find more vacation time, leisure time. We rush home from work so that we can sit on the couch. And one of the things that Csikszentmihalyi says is that work isn't bad and leisure isn't good on their own. Work is, is only bad if you hate your job and most often people hate their job when they feel like their job is meaningless and so his solution to this is to ask yourself who would be worse off if you didn't do your job and find a reason outside yourself a person outside yourself that you are working for that the thing that you're doing is making a difference in someone's life and I guarantee that it is and go to work for that. And the same thing with leisure. Getting home and sitting on the couch and watching TV is great and all of us need it at some point. Doom scrolling on our phone, right? Everyone needs that maybe for a minute. At some point, it's good for us. But it's not the same as growing. 
It's not going to give the same level of joy and satisfaction and fulfillment and abundance in your life as doing something with your spare time that causes you to grow. So let me brag on my two sons since they're not here. Charlie, please don't tell them that I said something good about them. (laughs) Uh, My two sons almost never come home and turn on the TV. They almost never come home. But when they are home, they, they seldom just just doom scroll. Um, and, and it's because the oldest one always wants to play guitar. Um, he swings by River Chase United Methodist Church because he plays in their youth praise band. Almost every afternoon he swings by to practice guitar. And then when he's not there practicing guitar, he's practicing guitar in our basement. And we bought him an electric guitar for Christmas, which I'm sure was Leanne's idea and not mine. But it's I'm, I'm so thankful that he's down there practicing, and I also get so tired of hearing the same riff over and over and over again, but he's getting better, and I absolutely love that about him, and what a good way to spend your leisure time growing. And Mac, the thing that I would say about him is, uh, and Robert does this too, but not quite as much, all Mac ever wants to do is work out. He thinks he's going to be Lou Ferrigno. I told him that the genetics are probably not there, uh, but nonetheless, he is at the gym every waking waking hour. Some of y'all know that he had appendicitis a couple weeks ago. We didn't hardly even know he had appendicitis because maybe his pain tolerance is really high, but he was still going to the gym every day. You know, when you call the doctor to say, hey, I think our kid might have appendicitis, they ask, can he do jumping jacks? And we would say, Mac, do some jumping jacks, and he would do them. And they're like, and so we, I'm defending myself because we're not bad parents is what I'm saying. (laughs) The point is, I love that those two guys are constantly doing something that is making them grow and not just doom scrolling. Although they are teenagers and they do it nonetheless. When we are in flow, two things happen that I think go right along with exactly what Jesus would tell us how to live. We surrender two things. We surrender ourselves and time. At the very beginning of this sermon, I asked you if you had ever experienced a moment when you were so deep in your work that you looked up and two or three hours had passed and you didn't notice. Or if you had ever been with friends and you, without even noticing it, dropped your guard and you stopped thinking about yourself for just a minute. Chick Sentmiha says this about, about this. Flow is being completely involved in an activity for its own sake. The ego falls away and time flies. Every action, movement, and thought follow inevitably from the previous one, like playing jazz. When I read something like this and I think in the context of how can we be present in the moment, how can we live a life where we are fully engaged with those that we're with, with ourselves, in our own discipleship and in our growth, And then I read something like this that, ironically, something that we've known for a couple thousand years at least, now science is is coming to say, yeah, no, that's what happens. When you are in those moments that are the best moments in your life, it's when you stop thinking about yourself and you stop experiencing time in the same way. And I can't read this without thinking about what Jesus said when he told the disciples, whoever would gain his life must lose it, And whoever loses his life for my sake would find it. Let's pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks.
Help us to realize it's the journey, not the destination. Help us to experience this moment as best we can, whatever moment that is that we have. Uh, help us to be present. Help us to be selfless, literally, and forget ourselves. Help us to be timeless and, and mistrack of time because we're doing things that, through your Holy Spirit, are growing us to be the people that you have called us to be. I ask that for every individual in this room and for the church collectively. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.